Hi, this is Pastor Corey. I hope this podcast will encourage you, strengthen your faith, and most importantly, help you draw closer to Jesus. Thank you for listening. Last Sunday, I spoke on uh, kind of a summarization of the book of Esther, and uh, a really amazing story about a heroine who saves the nation of Israel and what she did in order to do that. And then we celebrated with Parim afterwards. Now, really what a lot of the Jewish feasts are about, including Passover that's up and coming, is about a rescue story. Purim is about God rescuing his nation through Esther. Passover is about God rescuing a nation of people through Moses. There's time after time where God has stepped in to rescue his people throughout all of their history. I believe that inside of us, it is inherent to have this this desire or this earning or this understanding of what it means to be rescued, that you see this theme throughout, you know, all of culture, and you see it within songs and movies and TV shows. I, I think about some of the TV shows that, you know, are movies that are out there, like the Marvel movies. I you guys forgive me, but, you know, like Spider-Man, I, I don't know if some of these guys are Marvel because I don't do these movies, but several people are. So you got like Spider-Man, and what's he all about? Rescuing people, and Batman, and rescuing people, and Thor, and rescuing people, and, you know, Luke Skywalker. Wait, is he, he's not Marvel. The four, uh, the four horse, the four uh, Fantastic Four. Yeah, throughout... <laughs> All of these, right, wherever they come from, whatever they're about, some of the most famous, most popular movies are rescue stories. I I look at TV dramas, and you can watch most TV dramas, and on almost every episode, there's a rescue story of some shape. You know, whether you watch Grey's Anatomy, don't raise your hand if you do, uh, or The Good Doctor, I like to watch The Good Doctor, and in every episode of The Good Doctor, there is a, a rescue story. Something goes wrong, and somebody has to be rescued. It doesn't even matter if it's drama. You could watch The Magnolia Network. Anybody seen that channel now? Now The Magnolia Network has the, the uh, flip or flop or fixer upper, and you might be thinking, how in the world is there a rescue? Every episode, there's still a rescue story in flip or flop. They buy a house. They think that it's going to take 20000 to remodel it, and they'll make 100000 They come across something that endangers the whole house and is about to ruin the whole project. They need to get somebody else involved that's an expert. They come in, they rescue the house, they save the deal, and they still make lots of money in the end. Like the rescue stories in almost every story. I think about some of the movies. My wife and I, uh, we don't get too much into the sci-fi type stuff. Uh, we don't get into... The horror movies, which I I know those can be rescue stories too. We like real life stuff, Uh, true stories. And so, you know, when I think about that, I think about the movie like years ago. Some of you may not have seen this, but years ago, the movie Alive. Like these guys wreck in a plane, right? And they have to live in the mountains and they end up having to partially eat their people that are dying in order to survive, like this crazy story. And yet, they're rescued in the end, and they survive. I think about 127 hours and how he's hiking, and he has to cut off his own arm. I know this sounds gruesome, huh? I picked some <laughs> rescue stories. 
cuts off his arm and he, you know, wobbles out of the wilderness and the desert and then some people find him and they rescue him. And, you know, probably one of my favorite to date is Hacksaw Ridge. Any of you seen Hacksaw Ridge? Absolutely love the story of Hacksaw Ridge, how uh, the true story of this guy, I think he was Seventh-day Adventist or one of those, and he wouldn't carry a weapon in World War II when he was drafted, and then he goes and he saves soldier after soldier after soldier. Even when most of his fellow soldiers had left, he continues, and he ended up saving, like, I don't know if it was like a 100 guys overnight in the midst of battle, and he just continued to rescue people time after time after time. The story of the need to be rescued or of being, res- being a rescuer has been implanted in us since the beginning of time. If you go back to the very beginning, to the story of Adam and Eve, a lot of people don't think about it as a rescue story. But this morning as we look at their story, we're going to find that it was very much a rescue story that was, you know, started and has been inside of us all the way up through today. So when it comes to Adam and Eve, I I just want to talk about their life for a minute. How many here would love to have the perfect life, right? You do anything for the perfect life. It'd be great to have the perfect life. We all desire the perfect life. And don't lie, before you even, like, if you're married, got married, you were thinking of the home with the white picket fence or, you know, the perfect spouse and that sort of thing. And that's what Adam and Eve had. You know, God creates Adam and he puts him in a perfect world. And work isn't really work. Like, you know, it's fun. It's joy. He just, you know, has to take care of some things. But it doesn't take much to plant seed or till the ground or whatever it was that that he did in order to do some of those things or pick. You know, there wasn't even weeds, actually. You know, it's just the perfect place. And then gives him a wife. And can you believe it or not, men? But at one time, man had a perfect wife. Right now, you'd look to your wife and say, babe, you're perfect. And women, can you imagine you're given to a perfect man? Like, marriage is blissful. It's a perfect, it's a, it's a dream world. It's the perfect home. It's the perfect job. It's the perfect spouse for each other. Everything is perfection, and they don't have to do anything in order to maintain that perfection in their life, but refrain from one thing. Genesis chapter 2, 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded man, saying of every tree of the garden that you may freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. One thing, I've had a lot of people, this is a side note, you know, that have come to me over the years and say, why would God have even put a tree like that in the garden? Because without choice, the ability to choose, you're not really living. Without that, that opportunity, like I can't choose love if I don't have a choice to love. You can't force me to love. And it was all about choice. We have choices that we are given in life. And those choices are a part of what makes life life. The adventure of life, the good and the bad of life, the ups and the downs of life, we all have been given this opportunity to choose. And so they were given this choice. And, of course, most of you that are sitting here this morning, you know the story, deceived by Satan. How were they deceived by Satan? He took God's word. He kind of twisted it a little bit, took it out of context. He represents it. 
And I believe that in doing that, as Eve would hear this, that it probably created some sort of questions in her mind. Questions about God. Questions about what she really believes. Like, like when it comes to God's provision, would his, would he, did he really give them enough wisdom? Like if he put this tree there that's the tree of knowledge of good and evil, maybe he obviously didn't give us all the knowledge if there's the ability to gain more knowledge of good and evil. Like God is holding out on us, and if he's holding out on us, what else could he be holding out on? Could it possibly be that he's given us all these trees to eat from, but will they, will they always be enough to eat from, or is there something... Or will we ever go into a place of scarcity in life and we need more to eat from? Or, you know, you know how we are. It's, you know, we either respond out of a fear of a lack of something or we respond out of wanting more of something. So maybe all of those trees were really good, but they know that there's something that could be better. And so we're constantly in the search of a better cheeseburger. Right? Ate at Schmitty's yesterday, they reopened, great burgers, just in case you wanted to know. There's, there's always this desire inside of us to get the thing that's better, isn't there? So could they have had better? Was there going to be better fruit, better trees? Is there something there that, that God was holding out on them from? Was there, there going to be more personal satisfaction if they took this choice? Because though they understood joy... They didn't really fully understand joy because the, the fullness of joy, I think, comes from an understanding of knowing a lack of joy. But yet, in their mind, could it have created the question that there is the possibility to have more joy? Like, if we do this, maybe there will be more joy that comes into our life. We'll have more knowledge. We'll have more understanding. We'll have these things that will create more joy. Is that not something that we sometimes get tempted with in life? We want more joy. Why do people do a lot of the dumb things that they do? Because they're looking for a greater high, a greater excitement, a greater joy, more of those feelings in their life. You know, is it possible that, you know, they wondered about their safety? Are we really safe in this place? Will we not surely die anyways? We don't really know. I don't know if they had any of these questions. I do know that by the twisting of God's word that it did create some sort of doubt and question in their mind. Otherwise, they would not have reached for that fruit. He'd allowed them a perfect, play, perfect life in a perfect place, and they failed to live up to this one expectation. What was the crux of their sin? Some people might think that it was that they ate of the fruit, but it had nothing to do with eating the wrong thing. It did have everything to do with not believing God, doubting what he said, doubting his word, and in, his, in their doubt, in their doubt, because had they stopped with their doubt, they would have been okay, but in their doubt, they went against and made a choice to be disobedient to what God had spoke. They followed through on their doubt. When Adam and Eve were tried and tempted, they failed. In that section of scripture, if you have a Bible, there's a header that's often called in these verses, 8 through 24, the fall. Or sometimes it's called the curse because of what it represents. They fell short of the glory of God. They fell from the grace of God. And in that created the very first time 
for the need of a rescue story. Before I present the rescue story, I just want, to under, want you to understand what the repercussions of their sin was before we can fully appreciate the rescue. It's good to sometimes know why there's a need to be rescued. You know, you think about 127 hours and the guy saws off his arm and you watch the movie of him being in the desert for five days and the floods he has to face, the lack of food, the lack of water, the desperation, and you would fully understand according to the scenario, the circumstances, what he's enduring, feeling, and going through, the need to be rescued, right? You see in the movie Hacksaw Ridge that guys are getting shot and maimed and they're laying on the ground and many of them are going to die and you see this one guy rescuing all these guys. And when you see the horrors of battle, you understand the need to be rescued. But sometimes if we're not careful, spiritually speaking, I think that we miss that need to be rescued. We can look at other people and think that person needs to be rescued. But it's hard for us to fully appreciate being rescued if we didn't understand the need to be rescued. And so quickly, I just want to go over the story of Adam and Eve and the repercussions of their sin. Repercussions of Eve's sin in Genesis 3.16, God says, I'll greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception in pain you shall bring forth children. So God's repercussions for Eve's sin is that what was once meant to be pure joy, birthing forth a child, would now become a painful challenge. He continues in verse 16 and he says, your desire, for your your desire shall be for your husband and he will rule over you. So the second aspect of Eve's repercussions is that there'd be strife in her marital relationship with Adam. It's interesting that all of Eve's repercussions of sin had to do with the family situation. The pain that would be brought into family, the pain that could be brought into a, a, a family relationship through, through their parenting, through the spouse. And, and you think about how that plays out in today's world, the pain that comes between children and parents and husbands and wives and some of the greatest pains that we face are within our own family. I find it interesting that even though Eve blew it in God's eyes, and there would be lasting repercussions, one thing that God didn't do is he didn't remove his call from her life. Even though she blew it, there was still an expectation from God that she would fulfill what he had called her to do what he had commanded her to do in her life. The only difference is, though he said to go forth and to multiply and to fill the earth, is that now it's going to be a little bit more challenging to fulfill God's word in her life. Now she's going to have to deal with, with, you know, the the pain of childbirthing, but she's also going to have to deal with rebellious children, and, you know, she's going to have to deal with Adam popping an attitude once in a while, and she'll probably have more headaches at night, and, you know, the end result, of course, will still be joyous, but it's going to be a little bit more work to fulfill the multiplying, right? Painfully joyous. 
And then when it comes to Adam's repercussions of sin, the reason Adam might pop an attitude once in a while is because, you know, when he gets home from work in the afternoon, he'll have spent a hard day at work. And he might have an attitude about that. Genesis 3, 17 and 19, to Adam he says, Because you have the need of the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you should not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. Like literally all of creation at this point is cursed. We know that, that that's when the weeds came in, and it's going to make, you know, growing things a little bit more challenging. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. That word for toil is that you will have labor. It'll be laborious, that there will be pain, that there will be sorrow in your work. There will be hard times. Both thorns and thistles will, bring, will be brought forth for you. I, don't, I can't get distracted on what that's saying, but the thorns and the thistles are actually for Adam. Not to punish Adam, but for his benefit. And you shall eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. What's God saying at the very end? He's saying, you know what, now you're going to die. Again, what didn't God do? He did not take away his call on Adam's life. Even though Adam was in sin, even though Adam would have to live with the repercussions of his sin in life, there was still the expectation that Adam should fulfill what God had told him to do in life. That's a sermon right there. Because so often we allow sin to negate what we believe God has called us to do in life. God just simply made it a little more painful and a little bit harder. The final thing he's talked about was a repercussion for both of them. For dust you are and to dust you shall return. Faithful to his word. Death was to come. And with that being said, you know the story. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. An angel is put at the entrance to guard them from gaining entrance back in. But what really was the angel put there for? That now that they're in sin, and sin brings separation between mankind and God, it would never be the same. That he didn't want them to live eternally by eating of the tree of life in their sin. It was really for them because there would be eternal separation at that point. But God in his graciousness says, no, we got to start this over. I have to come up with a rescue plan so that we can get back to this. And so really, everything that God did in their lives wasn't just to be mean. The repercussions of sin were actually for them. The thorns and the thistles, he said, are for you. Why would it be for them? Because now relationship isn't going to be the same between Adam and Eve and God. That they'll still have that. They still have the ability to talk to them. But, but I don't believe it would ever be as close as it once was when they lived in the perfect world. And so they would have the need. They would recognize the need for having a rescuer in their life, a savior in their life. I need God because times are hard. Those thorns and those thistles produce a need inside of me that allows me the ability to recognize that I've got to have a savior to make it through this life. I've got to have a provider to make it through this life. I've got to have a comforter to make it through this life. There will be times when my wife is in great agony as she's birthing for a child, and we need a deliverer in our lives. 
It produced the need inside of mankind to be rescued. It was his grace that brought them the repercussions of their sin, that they would need that rescuer. The next step to this that we have to understand, for as bad as it may have been for Adam and Eve, and they needed to be rescued, and God did rescue them, that their repercussions were so lasting that it is still the same repercussions we face today. Their sin led to our sin. I mean, think about it. If Adam and Eve's sin had on, hadn't affected anybody else, it only affected them, then you would know that each person would have to face similar circumstances as what they faced. We'd be offered the Garden of Eden experience, and we would have the choice to remain sinless or gain a little bit more knowledge about good and evil. But that's not what happened. That wasn't an option. And it wasn't an option because once Adam and Eve were put out into the world, their kids would be born outside of the perfect place. Their kids from day one would be immediately influenced by the curse that's upon their parents. The pain from mom, parents who don't perfectly get along, dad who's gone out for work for who knows how long and, and then comes back in and there's fighting that might take place amongst them. Kids would immediately be born under this concept of sin, being separated from God to some degree, and the kids would have to grow up in a cursed world. It'll affect them, and it'll affect every generation that comes after them and through today's generation. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through, 12 through 14, Paul's writing to the Apostle Paul, and he says these words. Justice through one man, that one man is Adam, sin entered the world. It didn't just enter Adam, it entered the world. And death through sin. That's where death came in because sin always brings death. And thus death spread to all men because all sin. Somebody say all. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him, meaning Christ, who was to come. Like real quick, I just want to summarize this. Adam, it's right now Paul is going through this, this teaching of comparing Adam to Jesus Christ. Adam is the father of all flesh and blood. Those who are born upon the earth. Jesus Christ is, is essentially the father of all of those who would be born again into the spirit realm. And so there's this comparison taking place. And all those who are born under Adam, if you were born in flesh, in blood, you're not one of those aliens that can, you know, transfigure that we see about in conspiracy theories. If you're actually flesh and blood and amongst us today, you're living in sin. Sin is a part of your life. Mankind is predisposed to sin, and therefore we commit sin, and the wages of sin is separation from God and ultimately death, and thus death spreads to all of man. To just reinforce this, the consequences of sin in your life, Psalm 51.5, David would write, For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Romans 7.24, O wretched man that I am, Paul would write to the church. Paul, arguably one of the greatest, if not the greatest, apostles of the faith, 
so obedient to the Lord that he would give his life, that he would sacrifice himself for the cause of the kingdom of God, would cry out in his letter to the Roman church, for I am a wretched man. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Like, who are we in the church when we live in this somewhat protected environment called the United States of America to think that we've become anybody in our faith? When the Apostle Paul is one who would cry out that he is a wretched man. Romans 3.23, he would write, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 15.22, he would write to the people in Corinth, the gathering of believers, For as in Adam, all die. What I want us to understand this morning is nobody here is sinless. Nobody here is perfect. We need to understand the need to be rescued. That we are all grave sinners that sin has corrupted every one of us, that we're born into this world that is already guilty because of the sin of Adam, and then we become enslaved to sin and sentenced to death. And the bottom line is that in what Adam and Eve did to create the need for a rescuer, it's obvious, hopefully to you this morning, that we all still have a need for a rescuer today. Their need for a rescuer means that we must have a need for a rescuer also. Being born predisposed to sin, influenced by our parents' curse. How many of you had perfect parents? Right? Raised in a perfect family. I always say that every family is weird, and if you don't think that somebody in your family is weird, then you are the weird one. Constantly faced with the reality of death, there is no doubt that our world today is steeped in sin and the repercussions of it, unless we don't want to see what's going on around us. We see the repercussions everywhere. And the truth is, if we will fact check ourselves, we, including me, I'm in as much need of a savior as anybody else of a rescuer as anybody else. We are all in need of a rescuer as much as Adam and Eve ever was. In Romans chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, the Apostle Paul would continue on in this comparison between Adam and Jesus. And he says, and I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation, this verse, but there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater, even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. Everybody say even greater. Listen, in a perfectly coordinated plan, God drops in and he counters the sin of Adam with the righteousness of Christ. And just like that, his word says, we have access to God's grace and his forgiveness through this Savior, through this rescuer named Jesus. So I want to give you real quick three or four ways I, uh, here that I believe that Jesus' righteousness countered Adam's sin. Counter number one, 
Jesus rescues us from shame. From shame. In the garden, God actually showed Adam and Eve grace. When in Genesis 3.21, it says that instead of leaving them to bear the consequences of their rebellion, he looks down upon them with compassion. And he shed the blood of a lamb. And he took the skins to cover their shame. Even in their rebellion, like I think about all that Adam and Eve did and, and what that must have been like to God to look upon his creation that he gave a perfect life to. And this is what happens in life, right? Like we're faced with a choice, we make poor choices, and then we go through this. Like they didn't just settle like, oh yeah, I messed up, God. I'm sorry, please give me grace. And then God gives them grace. No, first they have to go through this whole blame thing. Like, right, I made a poor choice. And God, it's because of this woman that you gave me, right? And so, you know, what's he want to do? We always want to blame God for the bad things that happen because of the consequences of sin in this world. We always want to blame God because of the consequences of the choices that we make in this world. Like we're constantly trying to blame God. That's exactly what Adam did. If you wouldn't have given me this woman, maybe you could have given me a different woman. She didn't turn out to be as perfect as you said she was. Like, check, divorce, on to the next woman. There's got to be another woman here that's a little bit better than this woman, right? You know, like, God, why couldn't you have come through for me? Because this woman didn't work out. Like, so he wants to blame God initially. And he's blaming the woman. Like, she's the one that messed this situation up. And so, you know, they're fighting. He's fighting against his wife. Like, forget the whole one flesh thing. Like, all of a sudden, we're separated. It was her fault. And so all God sees when they first sin, don't, don't misunderstand this. They weren't like all repentant right off the bat, and that's why he did what he did. No, they had to play the game first. It wasn't my fault. I didn't really do it. The serpent is the one that deceived me. The devil made me do it. I thought there might be something better, but God, possibly you were holding out on us. You know what? Maybe there was more knowledge that we needed about the situation. And if we would have had more knowledge, then you know what? Then it wouldn't have happened like that. If we wouldn't have had the opportunity to have this knowledge or the opportunity to sin, like really, who's this about? Like when we see that God did something gracious towards them, it's not because all of a sudden they fell on their knees and they begged for forgiveness. They're like every one of us. We want to pass the buck, and we want to blame other people, and we want to blame society. We want to blame the government. We want to blame everybody else about really what's going on inside of us, and ultimately, we're blaming God. God, it's not good enough. God, why am I having to go through this? God, why are bad things happening? And God still looks down upon Adam and Eve, and he says, I love you guys. And though you're walking in shame right now, I don't want shame to destroy you. I don't want the repercussion of the shame of the sin of your life to be a constant reminder to you. And so he takes one of his other creations that he still loved, and he sacrifices this lamb. And he takes the skins, and he puts it upon Adam and Eve. And through his grace, he covers their shame but even greater Romans 10 11 the scripture says whoever believes on him Jesus Christ will not be put to shame whoever believes on him will not be put to shame 
you believe in Jesus Christ, then your battle is not shame. It doesn't mean that you've all of a sudden become sinless, that you won't still make mistakes. It doesn't mean that you will not always automatically fall to your knees and and take blame where it should be. It doesn't mean that you won't once in a while blame God. But it does mean that God wants you to know that when you're in that battle with the shame of your sin, that God does not hold that shame against you if you have Jesus Christ in your life. Jesus Christ, our rescuer, was publicly disgraced. He was despised. He was crucified and rejected for our freedom from shame. Our rescuer took care of the shame, and he showed us the way. The counter, the second counter that he did is he rescued us from, I want to say, unbelief. He, rest, he showed us the way of what it means to really trust God's word. Follow me here. Matthew chapter 4. Some of you guys know this story. Jesus is baptized, just as we should be baptized. It says that he is, he's empowered and he's led by the Holy Spirit. And where does the Holy Spirit lead him once he's baptized and he's about to start his ministry? He doesn't lead him to Jerusalem. He doesn't lead him to the temple. He doesn't lead him like, hey, now you've been baptized. We're going to start your ministry, and I want you to go, and I want you to start preaching. And all the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, the religious leaders, they're going to hoorah you, and you're going to grow a mega church here in the temple, and people are going to come from all over the world, and this thing's going to be 5,000 and 10,000 and 50,000, 100,000 people. You know, he could have led him into the temple and turned it into a great big mega church in Jerusalem. He could have led him into the streets and seen every person healed immediately just as Jesus did after where the Spirit led him in the first place. But the Spirit didn't lead him to minister right away. The Spirit didn't lead him to the temple to teach right away. The Spirit led him into the desert. And you ever wonder why did the Spirit first lead Jesus into the desert after he was baptized and being set up to do ministry before he led him to do the ministry? And he didn't just lead him into the desert like, hey, it's going to be really hot. I want you to sit here and fast for a few days and think about what you're about to do. No, the Spirit actually led him to Satan. Can you imagine that? The Spirit led him to a battle with Satan. The very first thing you're going to do after being baptized to launch your ministry is you're going to sit down in the desert, in a dry place. You're going to have a conversation with Satan. Have you ever just pondered why in the world would this take place? Except that Jesus came to counter rightly what Adam lost in the garden. Every time Satan said, if you are the son of God, as if he's trying to place doubt in Jesus' head, about what he's going to say in God's word. If you are the son of God, and then he'll take a little scripture and he'll twist it. If you are the son of God, let me take a little scripture of God's word and twist it. If, if, if you're really a follower of God, take a little scripture and twist it. 
if you're really a Christian. Let me give you a little twisted scripture and see what you do with it. And it creates doubt inside of people's minds. But Jesus didn't give time for doubt because it says that he immediately responded to each statement that the devil made. In verse 4, he responds that we must live by the word of God. In verse 7, that we don't put God to the test. In verse 10, that we will worship and serve God only. The whole time, the devil's quoting scripture out of context in an attempt to get Jesus to do something contrary, just like he did Adam in the very beginning. What is one of the first things that happens before Jesus goes into the ministry? is that he goes to Satan in order to counter what Adam lost in the garden. Jesus believed the word of God. He did not doubt. He obeyed the word of God, and he passed the second test of mankind perfectly. Counter number three, Jesus rescues us from death to life. Just think about this. It's kind of a side note. But you know that when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, that after that exchange with Satan and the doubting and the questioning and the repercussions of their sin, they're separated, that God sends an angel. We think it's a negative thing if we're not careful just to keep them out. You can't ever come back to this perfect place again. But we found out, as I have already said, that it was his grace that kept them from going in. And then we look at what happens to Jesus after his encounter. It says in Matthew that God sent an angel in order to minister to Jesus. So he takes them, takes Jesus after having been baptized on a high into the desert. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to counter what Adam lost. You're going to go into the battle with Satan. You're going to win. You're going to be victorious. And now I'm going to send an angel in order to, to fill you up, to minister to you. And then it says he's going to step into ministry empowered. Empowered. He ministered to him so that Jesus could now bring eternal life to mankind, where Adam's disobedience to the twisting of God's word once brought death. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, I already said that, but the rest of that verse says, Even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Everybody say all. What really connects these two stories is the aspect of belief. I want you to understand and, and try not to miss this. I'm not trying to twist anything, but I, I believe this, that God is most concerned with belief, not sin. There's a cure for sin. The bloodshed in the skin of God's lamb, it covers that. But belief is actually unpardonable. I mean, unbelief. Yeah. Thanks for public speaking and saying things silly. Unbelief is unpardonable. John 3, 17 through 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the word, world through him might be saved. Everybody say rescued. He who believes in him is not condemned. He who believes. Everybody say believes. He who believes, he who has belief in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe, 
He who has unbelief is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Think about that. Just as we cannot be justified by keeping the law, we are also not condemned by disobeying it. It's not so much about sin as it is about belief. About belief. Hebrews 11.6, but without faith it's impossible to please him, God, for him who comes to God must believe. Everybody say believe. They must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Like our connection with Christ is, is spiritual. We're born again into the family of God voluntarily by faith. We inherit eternal life. And judgment follows one act of trespass in Adam. But grace follows one act of righteousness in Christ. Romans 5.17, my final verse. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more. I'm reading this out of the New King James. Much more. Everybody say much more. Those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. By one man's offense, death reigned, but much more those who receive abundant grace and the gift of righteousness, that we have the ability to reign in life through Jesus Christ. I just love the way the Apostle Paul uses the term much more to show the supremacy of God's grace. God is much more ready to save us upon an imputed righteousness than he is to condemn us upon an imputed guilt. We fail and fall like Adam and Eve, but the love and grace of God seeks us. The cross bridged the gap between us, to bring us to a full rescue. We may have lost the Garden of Eden, but I believe we've gained the grounds of heaven, and that indeed is much more. If you want to go from ruin to rescue, believe in God's word and come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ.